Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. I am Sonny Bunch, culture editor at The Bulwark. I am very pleased to be joined today by Bill Ryan. Uh, Bill is a book and film critic, as well as the writer and sole proprietor of the blog, The Kind of Face You Hate. Uh, his criticism has appeared in such publications as The Bulwark, RogerEbert.com, The Oscilloscope Laboratory's Musing Blog, uh, and elsewhere. Let's all give a warm welcome to him. Bill, how, how are you doing? Thank you for being here today. One of my favorite writers. I'm great. How are you? I'm very good. Uh, and Greg Ferrara is also with us. We've got a two-guest show, very rare. Uh, Greg is a longtime writer for Turner Classic Movies uh, and has written for other outlets, including Cinema Retro, Movies Unlimited, uh, and MSN Movies. He hosts his own podcast, Phantomous Cinema Presents. Go check that out. Greg, how are you doing? I'm doing just great. Happy to be here. So we uh, today are doing kind of a summer... Uh, reading special. A lot of this is I. This is a question I get strangely frequently on the internet. They say, "What books would you recommend people read to uh, become a better writer about movies, or uh, to learn more about the film industry and that sort of thing?" And uh, I've done threads before, and I've 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 put them out there, but it seems like a topic people like. So let's uh, let's get into it, Greg. Yes. What's your first title? What do you recommend people pick up this summer while they're sitting around at the beach? Okay, well, I've got a few titles, obviously. And I was thinking I'd start with one that isn't quite in the conversation right now. Uh, later on, for instance, I'm going to get to like the Spielberg and Scorsese books. But the first one is Vivian, which is the full authorized biography of, of Vivian Lee. So if you're into classic film, or you don't know much about Vivian Lee. She has a fascinating story. But one of the reasons I chose this is because it was written by Kendra Bean, who was someone I started blogging with back in like, you know, 2007. Um, and a part of it is, it's just interesting that you get to know somebody in 2007 when they're in college. And then, you know, as the years go by, they become a, a full-formed academic scholar uh, writing authorized biographies as opposed to like Bill, who you meet him, you know, and then 15 years later, he still hasn't really done anything. And you're like, <laughs> you know. So part of it's that, too. Like it. Bill's good <laughs> for the Twitter stuff. Right. But it's like, wow, one of us actually amounted to something. Right. Um, it wasn't me. <laughs> um uh, I, I, I write articles that nobody reads, but um, in the book, she basically covers Vivian Lee's life, which most people just know her from Gone with the Wind and maybe A Streetcar Named Desire. Um, but Good she really movies. covers what now? Thumbs up. Good movies. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and yeah, it covers a lot of her mental uh, issues that she had throughout her life. She, she had some severe uh, psychoses. Uh, she had several psychotic breaks over the course of her career. And um, uh, should I just give some examples from the book? Because there's a yeah, couple sure. of really Go good stories. Go for it. So the streetcar named Desire is the one I was most interested in. Because when I was in college uh, and I had to do my my final senior thesis for my degree, uh, I, I majored in theater, by the way. It was on Tennessee Williams. And uh, Streetcar always fascinated me because the play is so vastly different than the movie. Uh, and when they did the movie, you know, they they edited out all mention of homosexuality, which is literally 90% of Blanche's motivation for her character because her husband was a homosexual and she caught him in an affair with another man. And then he committed suicide. And in the movie... You literally don't hear any of that story. Um, so a lot of people leave the movie thinking, what the hell was wrong? What happened to Blanche? What happened to her husband? Why is she so screwed up? So the book goes into detail about how much um, Vivian Lee had to get used to playing the part of Blanche, first in England. And then when she came over, the Broadway cast, which was Marlon Brando, um, Kim Hunter, Carl Malden, they all got chosen to be in the movie, but Jessica Tandy, who played Blanche, was left out of the mix because they wanted the big star. 
to be playing Blanche, since Brando himself wasn't a star yet. Um, so she expected a lot of animosity from the rest of the cast members for taking over for Jessica Tandy. And interestingly enough, she didn't get any from Marlon Brando, who thought she was terrific. He felt that um, because of her own troubles in life, that she mirrored Blanche's life more accurately than Jessica Tandy. But Carl Malden didn't like her much at all. And in the, in the biography, Kendra Bean relates a story that Malden told about Vivian Lee that comes from his own autobiography. So it's not like some third-hand account, some gossip account. He's literally telling the story himself. And, and I just want to say right up front that I love Carl Malden as an actor. And I've always gotten the sense that he's a really terrific guy. But this story he tells he tells it in a way where it seems like he's defending himself and making Vivian Lee look bad when the whole story just makes him look kind of awful. Um, it was the cast wrap up for a streetcar and Lawrence Olivier rented this house in Hollywood to hold a big party. So Malden and his wife Mona show up late and he didn't account for traffic, I guess. And so he comes in late, and everybody's already taken their seat for the luncheon. And he gets called over to this other table, and his wife, Mona, ends up going out to a swing by the pool to just sit by herself. So Vivian Lee and her friend, John Buckmaster, who was also uh, had a lot of psychotic issues, um, they go out to sit with Mona. I mean, it's, it's their party. It, it, her husband's throwing it. Vivian Lee's husband is throwing the party for her movie, and she leaves and goes out and sits with Mona, as does John. And the two of them start talking, and apparently Mona was, I don't know if she was just shy, but the, the two of them end up just kind of talking with each other. And when Mona related that to Carl later, he, uh, he wrote that he was incensed about it. And he said in his, in his autobiography, he said, I guess she didn't have to be polite or civil because she's Scarlett O'Hara. And all I could think is, well, you didn't go out to the swing, asshole. I mean, you just sat in there at the party. Well, it's, it's your wife. And you didn't go out there. And you're mad at Vivian Lee because she went out there, but she didn't talk to her? I don't know. Yeah. Mullen seems kind of like a jerk here. It's, it's kind yeah. of like the uh, Am I the Asshole uh, for the 1950s. Yeah. Uh, he writes the whole story, and you're like, well, yeah, it was you, dumbass. I mean, <laughs> you, you should have gotten up from the table, and you should have gone and sat with your wife. Yeah. Um, you should have accounted for traffic. I mean, you showed up late. <laughs> it's like the Irishman. Come on. Yeah. He was probably wearing shorts, too. Uh, all right. So uh, what was the name of that again? So you're like, God, is he That's done it. talking That's, now? We're, is done. Done talking? we're done. We're done with that story. <laughs> I think the podcast we're is done. over, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. What's the, the way, name of, what's the name of the book again? It's Vivian, the name of the book right? Is Vivian. It's just it's what's, Vivian. Who is the author? Kendra Bean. Kendra Bean. Okay, great. Uh, Bill, what is your first pick? Don't don't go for like six minutes, please, on this first uh, one. <laughs> my first is a, a fairly new and popular book, uh, Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas by Glenn Kenny. Can I assume Glenn Kenny, who who we have had on the Bulwark Goes to Hollywood? I just want to point that out to talk about this book. Can so I? if you're if you if you are wowed by Bill's recommendation that he's about to deliver, he's been on this show. Uh, it's a wonderful book about, uh, you know, obviously one of the, uh, one of Martin Scorsese's most, uh, beloved films, you know, he, he's made only gangster films and this is the, the most popular yes. one. And, yeah. <clears throat> um, I, kn I know you've read it, Sonny. Have you read it, Greg? I have not read it yet, believe it or not. Well, it's, I have it's lots of books I've bought that I haven't read yet. I do yeah. have it. Uh, it's a terrific book, and it's structured so unusually. It it has um, ten chapters, an epilogue, blah, blah, blah. But the fourth chapter, and most of the chapters are like 20 pages or whatever, but the fourth chapter is almost 200 pages. And it it breaks down the entire film um, scene by scene. 
it describes every scene. It describes everything that went into the making of the scene, the shooting of the scene. Um, it um, it goes into the background of all the the um, like even the the most uh, um, obscure uh, supporting actors, um, but it the it just gets into it's an incredible breakdown of the movie, and but it gives you these kind of details where you know the scene, the famous scene where. Uh, they go into the club and they introduce all these different mob guys, including, uh, you know, uh, Jimmy two times that whole scene. And he gets yeah, into the, what scene is that? Yeah, I remember. Of course. I <laughs> and, but he, like the, he gets into, he finds so many crazy stories about it. And there's the one guy, uh, Mo Black's brother, fat Andy. And all the guy says in the movie is to, uh, um, Ray Liotta, um, how you doing, buddy? That's his entire line. And Glenn, you know, researched this guy. This guy used to be a cop who worked on the mafia squad in New York, whatever you'd call that. Then he retired, and then he became a mob hitman. Damn. <laughs> as one does. As one does. Oh. And, that, and now he's in prison, I believe, if I remember correctly. And it, it's just it, – it, it's really meticulous <laughs> and and – fascinating and um i i just i i've I, by the time i'd read the book i'd seen goodfellas god knows how many times you know um but i it made me want to immediately watch it again it, it and it the the M- mvp of the whole thing honestly seems to have been other than scorsese obviously is michael bauhaus who uh the work he he put into that uh and and the problems he solved as the dp are just extraordinary and yeah he was the uh he was the cinematographer on that yeah uh and i was just blown away by by what glenn describes as what what he was able to accomplish and the impossible things that chris says he asked of him that he figured out and suggested Yeah. You know, honestly, when you said you'd watch it a million times or however many, that's the reason I haven't read it yet. But uh, I, I feel like, oh, am I going to be too familiar with the movie? Am I going to get am I going to get like bored by it? But it, I've heard nothing but great recommendations about it, though. So, no, it's it's really it's really, really good. And there's there's also a bunch of interesting stuff at the front just about how they acquired the rights to it, who acquired it mm-hmm. and how that got into Scorsese's hands. And like there, yeah. there are these weird alternate universes in which, you know, you know, Scorsese never, never made this movie. Somebody else did. And it's very, yeah, uh, it's very interesting. And to, it closes, to kind of contemplate. it closes with uh, a, a long interview uh, with Scorsese. And it's not just about, um, Goodfellas, it's, although it's obviously largely the interview I'm talking about, um, right. it's it's about his whole career to some extent, and it's just it's just phenomenal. And you just the, the movies that Scorsese is so frustrated by that we all think are well, not everybody, but that I anyway think are so great, and he's so frustrated by, and it's just it's just a great look into. Even though it's laser focused on that one movie, it's a great look at his career as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. So that's Made Men by Glenn Kenny. Make sure to check that out. Uh, uh, my first book is a. Uh, it's called Final Cut by Stephen Bach, and it's mm. about the making of um, Heaven's Gate, the kind of famously troubled uh, follow up to Deer Hunter by Michael Camino. Um, and it's it's a fascinating book because it's it, the first third or so is essentially a history of United Artists. It's a history of the studio United Artists and kind of what that meant to the world of Hollywood, the actors, the directors, everybody else who worked uh, at United Artists. And then the 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 back half, the back two thirds, is about the production of of Heaven's Gate, which is has become uh, kind of a a watchword for. Uh, cinematic hubris. Uh, it is. It was. It went enormously over budget. Uh, Camino shot forever and ever, uh, and it it uh, lost a and it lost so much money that it actually killed the studio. Uh, that's that's how much money it lost. Hard to do that. Um, uh, but <laughs> Final Cut by Stephen Bach. It's very much worth 
picking up and checking out if you're into both uh, the history of Hollywood, how the business of Hollywood works. I mean, it's a really fascinating look at uh, what producers actually do um, on a day-to-day basis. You don't you don't get uh, you don't get a lot of books like that, and 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 this is one of them. So, Final Cut by Stephen Bach. Uh, even if you're not a, an enormous Heaven's Gate fan, you will find lots and lots to love here. Is are you a, are you a Heaven's Gate fan? I like it. I wouldn't say I'm an enormous fan. I think Deer Hunter is better. I think like the I the I have the Criterion Blu-ray of Heaven's Gate, um, which 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 reinstalls the kind of prologue and the uh, Mm. at the at the university, and it's 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 excessively long. It's an excessively long film. I watched a documentary about the making of it, and Bach Bach he was a producer in the film, right? Yes. I don't know if he's the one who said this in the uh, documentary I watched, but um, one of the producers or executive uh, at a uh, an initial screening where he where Chimino presented, here's my cut, uh, and it was like five hours long, <laughs> and it was when it was over, Chimino said to the guy, "I think I can lose fifteen minutes." And, oh, wow, yeah. and, and, okay. the, and the producer said, I was furious. <laughs> I was furious. He said it twice. <laughs> I was furious. Yeah. yeah. But I respect, uh, I respect that movie a lot, though. I mean, there's there's a lot to like in it. There is a lot to there's like in it. But amazing it is, stuff in it. It's also, it is, there's uh, some bullshit in it, too. But yeah. still. Um, and all that kind of coexists with each other. Anyway, Final Cut by Stephen Bach. Check it out. It's you can find it on Amazon or, or booksellers anywhere near you. All right, what's what's next for Greg? Greg. Okay, well I'm going uh, next up. Uh, kind of in time would be Orson Welles. So I chose Citizen Welles by Frank Brady because it was the first um, posthumous biography of Welles written. It was done in '89. Brady had like. Bogdanovich interviewed Wells extensively in the 70s and early 80s. And uh, one of the reasons I chose it is because ever since Simon Callow Callow took over with his Wells biographies, which is not even finished and still extraordinarily detailed. It's it's at three volumes right now, the the Callow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and he was the last. It's very accessible. Can I jump Go in ahead. really quick? Yeah. I don't know if he's going to be allowed to do it, but Kello's hope is for the last volume to be a novel. <laughs> That's really cool sounding, actually. But, I know. Uh, I agree. I agree. But um, yeah, well, Brady's is it's very accessible. I'm looking right now. It's 596 pages, um, complete with a final like 30 pages where it just gives you a year by year timeline of Paul's life. Um, but I also picked it because Mank came out in the last year and was very successful with Hollywood, at least. Uh, I didn't like it at all. And, I, and I didn't like it either. mainly because of the way Fincher went with Pauline Kael's narrative on who wrote it. Um, and of course, Brady covers all that in it. And he, uh, he even has the contracts that Wells, you know, did with, with Mankiewicz. And how it did indeed say, and I think this is what Fincher and Kale were going with, that anything written would be Mercury's property. Um, and so Mankiewicz wouldn't get credit. And Wells was doing that because his contract with RKO said he was going to be the writer of the film. Um, later, when he talked to George Schaefer about it, who was the head of RKO, he told him, no, it's no problem. We don't, we don't care if you have a co-writer. Um, at this point, Mankiewicz had gone to the Screenwriters Guild and asked them to intercede. And they wrote back, uh, which Brady has in the book. Um, I obviously can't remember it word for word, but they wrote back saying, you know, you signed a contract that says it's Mercury's property. There's nothing much we can do here. Um, and so it was Wells who, after he discovered Schaefer didn't have a problem, he said, sure, let's let's put Mank on the on the credits. And it even goes so far as to reproduce the notes on the uh, title credits that Wells received, where when that was decided, it said screenplay by Orson Wells and Herman Mankiewicz. And Wells has a, he's got the name Mankiewicz circled and he has an arrow going up indicating he wants Mank's name first. So, you know, when you read all that, it, it just makes the entire tenor of the Mank yeah. movie more 
infuriating. Yeah. The uh, the 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 Kale book. I actually have the Citizen Kane book yeah. by Pauline Kale, uh, yeah. which is now some. It's some insane amount of money on on Amazon because yeah. everybody wanted to buy it because Mank was out and this was you know kind of what it was based on. Um, but it is it's interesting. I still I I, I enjoy reading. Uh, I enjoy reading Kale's essay on this, which originally appeared in the New Yorker, if I remember correctly, uh, because. Yeah, because it is, it's R-A-Z-I-N-G. It's, it's a, I don't want to say it's a useful corrective to the auteur theory, but it is a reminder that the auteur theory can be, you know, kind of taken and abused and not, not properly understood by mm. folks I, I think, you know, looking to. I think not properly understood is the key part because the actual yeah. theory, as I have always understood it, the criticism, the, directors. the the critic, yes, that that for one thing, and also the criticism that is uh, directed towards the theory tends to not understand the theory. It, it it's yeah. it's not a, it's not about not giving anybody else any credit. Right. <laughs> you know that's that's right. not it. So uh, that's this is one of the things that frustrates me about the way the theory is discussed these days. Sure. Uh, Bill, what, what's your, what's your next well, pick? I'm a little conflicted now because he just, cause Greg just talked about Wells and I was going to talk about Wells next, but oh. I guess we'll go ahead and do it anyway. Yeah. Uh, so <clears throat> I'm going to sort of double up, but not really. Uh, the one I wanted to talk about is this is Orson Wells, which, uh, is maybe the only film book other than another one I'm going to talk about in a little bit that I've read twice. Um, it's basically Peter Bogdanovich um, had a at, at the time a close friendship with Wells that sort of fractured over the years. But at the time they did, they, they were very close, and Wells um, consented to be interviewed several times over the course of I don't know how many years, um, and for a book. And the result is this is Orson Wells, <clears throat> and it's Wells was such a uh, erudite and funny um, and fascinating person. I believe Marlena Dietrich said that every time I spoke to Orson, I felt like a plant that has just been watered. And he, he's, he was such a fascinating guy to, to read about, to, to listen to his interviews and it covers his entire career up to that point. Um, and there was uh, there's a part in the book where he he was very opinionated, uh, and he said something. There, there's a hint that he's just said something very negative about a famous director or famous directors, and then in the book uh, it says uh, something like redacted, or and there's a note from Bogdanovich where he says. Um, that Orson Welles had sent him uh, a letter, you know, while the book was being put together, and he said, "You remember that part where I said that guy should, that director should be put in jail?" Well, let's commute the <laughs> sentence. Um, nobody likes to hear this about. I, 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 this is how I feel. I'm not taking the opinion back, but no one likes to read that about themselves. When I read it about myself, I don't like it. Why add to that? So it's taken out, and right, you, right. while you're reading it, you both are like, "Well, that's pretty cool of Orson Welles," but I'm also extremely disappointed to not read what he said. And then many years later, uh, Henry Jaglum. Uh, yeah, I was about to say Henry Jaglum didn't have any problem. Well, because he, because as I understand it, Orson Welles didn't know he was being recorded and that this was going to be ah. a book someday. That's my understanding. I don't really know all the facts, but anyway, his book, My mm. Lunches with Orson, uh, which That's is not surprising. essentially the same thing, uh, but much rawer. It, it's much more raw. It, like Welles is just off he's completely unchained in this book and it's I, it's uncomfortable to read at times because of how negative and how mean he is and also when you think well he didn't he was just saying this to someone he thought was a friend you know and it makes okay. it, the whole thing seem weird but in any case uh it's great to read wells talk about anything really and also there was a i don't know if it's ever been released on any other media other than uh, cassette, but there was an audiobook of This Is Orson Welles, which was basically the raw audio 
of of the interviews. Oh, really? I didn't even know that. Yeah, and I have it somewhere, but it's on cassette. But you, it's just fascinating to me in like a time machine kind of way because you hear Bogdanovich and Wells talking, and you hear like Wells put a cigar in his mouth and light it while he's talking, and it's just it's like you almost can see him doing it, and it's just yeah. it's fascinating. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that'd be great to have on Audible. Get on that Amazon. Come on, get the get the rights. I've looked. I've only seen it on cassette. Uh, since we're since we're talking a little bit about uh, you know biographies and that sort of thing, uh, and and you mentioned uh, Vivian 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 Lay Vivian Lee Vivian Lee. Uh, I'm going to recommend Richard Schickel's uh, biography of Ilya Kazan, <laughs> which is uh, just a fantastic. Uh, kind of deep dive into both his career and uh, specifically the, one of the reasons I picked it up uh, was because the there is a there is a lot of controversy toward the end of Kazan's life. The Oscars wanted to give him a uh, a special award. A lot of people were angry because Kazan famously testified in front of the uh, House on American Activities Committee, and Schickel like pretty convincingly goes through and talks about his disillusionment with the the communists and and kind of why he um, why he did what he did. It's not it's not just you know cowardice. Uh, or or whatever, it, there was you know an actual reason uh, behind it. So worth worth checking out, worth um, thinking about. Certainly, as we get into another very weird moment uh, in the political uh, examinations of the beliefs of our uh, artistic uh, artistic leaders. Um, so that's uh, that, again, that's Richard Chickle's biography uh, of Ilya Kazan. Check it out. It is on. The Amazon. Uh, Greg, what you got next? Well, since you said that, I'm going to go with Spielberg next because that's by Richard Schickel. Hey. So we'll just have these seamless transitions throughout the whole thing. <laughs> it's working. It's working perfectly. Um, so anyway, he, his it's Spielberg, and I keep thinking this is actually a video cast. I'm going to like hold these books up and you things. Can, you can do that. I like to see it. But you yeah, know? it's Spielberg. Yeah, um, it's fantastic. Spielberg himself. Uh, Basically authorized, and he writes the foreword himself, Steven Spielberg does. And um, one thing I like about this is it's uh, Spielberg makes clear in the beginning, it's not a biography of Spielberg, but it's a film by film detailing of his career. And throughout it, Schickel inserts quotes. Um, you'll be reading all about Sugarland Express or whatever. And on the side of the page, there'll be a quote by Spielberg. And that's nowhere to be found within the article on Sugarland Express. And Schickel says those just came from conversations he had with Spielberg that he recorded. And so, and it's very, very tantalizing. The one for Sugarland Express, for instance, is that if I could do one film over again, that's the one I would do completely different. I'm not sure what he's talking about there because it doesn't go into any detail beyond that quote. Um, but basically, it, it it gives a lot of great information on all the movies that Spielberg did. And the ones I like reading about are like Jurassic Park, where he says that he honestly was just trying to do a good sequel to Jaws. Um, and that uh, that was his motivation in doing it. Because Jaws 2, done by, uh, who did it? Jeannot Schwark, or I, I think, had just no sucked one. so bad. No one knows. But Spielberg wanted to do a good sequel to Jaws, and that's what um, Jurassic Park did for him. Um, and he and he's he's very he's very honest about his own movies. He said he felt that Amistad came off too dry, like a history lesson. Um, Except for the middle felt, passage sequence, I yeah. think that. Part's I mean, amazing. he's he's got good and bad things to say about all his movies, but for me, the most interesting stuff had to do with uh, artificial intelligence, just because it overlaps with Kubrick. Um, and the one, how far does this how far does this book go through uh, Spielberg? It was 2012, 13, so okay. it goes through War Horse. Okay, oh, I didn't know. It was so, yeah. so it so so it so it includes Lincoln and then up through War Horse. Yeah, I forget which. I forget, so that's only really like ten ten. It's like uh, BFG in the Post and and or no? Yeah, unfortunately, BFG? we'll never know what they say. About Ready the Player post. One. Um, Ready Player One, and uh, yeah. what's the what's the Hanks the lie the spies? Oh, Bridge of Spies. Uh, well, that was before. Yeah. That was before War Horse, wasn't it? Or am I yeah. wrong? No, was it? Oh, I thought it was after. I don't know. I, don't know. I might I be can't wrong. remember. 
But the one thing, and then we'll move on past this, but I just, the one thing that Spielberg seems adamant that he wants to make clear, so I guess it's a, a really sensitive point for him in the artificial intelligence section, is the ending, uh, where he says everybody assumes that Stanley would have ended it with with the boy underwater, the blue fairy, until his batteries die and he's gone forever, and that I must have been the one who tacked on this ending 2,000 years later. And he says, that was in Stanley Kubrick's original, you know, uh, draft of this. He says, I was developing it in good faith based on what Kubrick wrote. And I, I think it, the whole thing works. Yes, I, I, I wrote the article I, on TCM for AI, and I called it, I mean, I think it's a masterpiece yeah, from I start to finish. So I don't have a problem with the ending. I just rewatched it recently. But a lot of people do, and apparently it's a it's a sticking point for Spielberg. He wants everybody to know that Kubrick, in fact, did have <laughs> the that ending. The botched ending was Stanley's fault, not <laughs> yeah, my yeah, fault. Yeah. Stop blaming so, me for it. Well, they act like it's such you a know. it's such a happy ending. People just want to bag on Spielberg and say, "Look at this yeah. happy ending he added to it," and it's it's not that happy. It's it's an uncomfortable ending to me. I uh, I don't know. Yeah. But it, I mean that that's that mom that that the that the robots rather uh, uh, give to him for a day uh, is not a human, and her emotions are clearly not genuine, and it's it's a very eerie sequence to me. Yeah. No. Uh, okay. Uh, so that was Richard Chickles, right. Steven Spielberg. Uh, check that out. Uh, sounds. I'm actually going to pick that up. You've you've sold me. You've All sold right. Me on that one, Greg. None of the other ones so far. Bill, <laughs> you sell me on something. Come on, what, what do you got next? Well, you want to talk about a smooth transition. Um, oh, boy. Steven Spielberg directed a movie called Jaws. And in Jaws... What? Yeah. When did that happen? Uh, <laughs> 1947. And in that movie... Oh, that's before I was born. And in that that's... movie, uh, uh, Roy Scheider uh, uh, is married to... Uh, he's Martin Brody, and he's married to Ellen Brody, and she's played by Lorraine Gary. And Lorraine Gary was married to Sidney Scheinberg, and he is central to the battle for Brazil. Um, the story about how Universal Pictures tried to uh, gut Terry Gilliam's film Brazil. That masterpiece Brazil. Masterpiece yeah. Brazil, but absolutely. That's and, the style on the Bulwark Goes to Hollywood is to always refer to it as Terry Gilliam's masterpiece well, Brazil. It is <laughs> one of my absolutely – Top, I, I love it so much. It's one of my favorite movies. And, you know, when I first saw it when I was a little, when I was somewhat little anyway, I I was just knocked out by it. And, and the ending was so troubling to me. <clears throat> I thought it was going to end happily, even though the false happy ending that you're watching with uh, 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 Sam Lowry uh, seeming to escape um, the awfulness of this dystopian world and be with the woman that he loves in this idyllic uh, uh, location doesn't actually make any logical sense, but I was a kid and I was buying into it. And then the hammer comes down spoiler. And <laughs> then I, I find out uh, probably through reading uh, Harlan Ellison's watching uh, the Harlan Ellison book of criticism about uh, how the movie that we are able to see now almost didn't exist because it was so dark that Universal Pictures and they pumped so much money into it. And Gilliam is a difficult man at, in the best circumstances from what I understand. And he goes over budget and everything. Um, and so they, they tried but to take it away from him and they cut it to like 90 minutes and tacked on this ridiculous ending and then this book comes out, and I bought it, and I've read it at least twice. And it's the whole story uh, about how Gilliam fought uh, Universal um, and won, which is rare. Um, but he had certain things in his contract that allowed because one of the main he had final cut as long as it was short at a certain running length, runtime, and he did that. So they really didn't legally have a leg to stand on, but he still had to fight tooth and nail. But it's the whole story of it, and they've they've made documentaries about about it that are based on this book. And it, it's one of the, 
And he's had problems yeah. with everything. Every movie he's ever made has had, has had problems. And there's another one about the making of uh, Ventures of Baron Munchausen called Losing the Light by Andrew Yule, which is also good, but not as good. Because anyway, but it's worth checking yeah. out as well. And and just a quick uh, recommendation on that. The, well, I don't know if it's on the Blu-ray too, but that the original uh, – Criterion DVD of Brazil, where it has yeah, all of the, the big box, the big brick. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's still yeah. one of my favorites. Yeah, uh, the I, I know the DVD set had that. I'm pretty sure the Blu-ray does as well. And I think the 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 Blu-ray has all three cuts. Yeah, it does. Well, yeah, if I DVD remember, one, yeah. The, yeah, the DVD definitely does. Yeah, I can't. I, I I would have to go check. I'll maybe I'll put it in show notes. Um, but the 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 Criterion uh, set of Brazil is the fr- it's it's actually the first Criterion set I ever watched. I went through the whole thing. It was crazy because yeah. I was like, it's I was fascinated so by this story. Um, I was fascinated by the story, and there the documentary about the the how they saved it is really interesting. I mean, there's there's a whole I don't, I, I assume the book gets into this, but the uh, was it the Los Angeles Film Critics Association I think that made so. it Picture yeah. of the Year yeah. and like went to war for it and was like, you have to let this director have his vision. Sorry, I should have then the, I should have said the uh, the author of the book is Jack Matthews, uh, who I believe was uh, the L.A. Times film critic at the time, or one of the yeah. the uh, L.A. Times film critics. Sorry. And then the New York film critics saw it and were like, eh. <laughs> what the hell do they know? <laughs> yeah. L.A. L.A. wins again. Uh, so wait, what's what's the name of the book and the, the author again? Uh, the Battle of Brazil, Terry Gilliam versus Universal Pictures and the Fight to the Final Cut by Jack Matthews. Okay, check that out. Uh, up next for me, um, I'm going to pick a a book of screenplays. We had we all discussed having a William Goldman book uh, at at one point or another in the the pre show talk. Um, but I'm going to I'm going to go with four screenplays, which is uh, Marathon Man, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Princess Bride, and Misery, uh, all of which are great entertaining movies, um, and all of which have very good, solid screenplays. Uh, Marathon Man was adapted from Goldman's own novel, of course, um, uh, as was Princess Bride. Uh, and Misery is famously a Stephen King book. Um, but the, the I, I love this because it's, it's not just the screenplays. And even if it was just the screenplays, it would be well worth reading because everybody who likes movies should read a screenplay once. Just sit down with like a collection of screenplays and read what it looks like on the page before it's on the screen. It'll it'll really kind of change how you how you see movies and how you think about uh, what we talk about when we talk about what a good screenplay is. Yeah. Um, uh, but but also he just he just talks about each of these movies and adapting them and and you know it runs through some of his memories and uh, uh, what he was thinking while he was writing them. Uh, so very much recommended. William Goldman is one of the best writers about the business of Hollywood, uh, and uh, he was one of the best screenwriters. He won several Oscars. He's uh, just one of the one of the all time greats. Um, so again, four screenplays uh, by William Goldman. Just go go pick that up. Yeah, I remember seeing him interviewed when he was talking about Marathon Man and talking about how much he hated the spoiler for the end. How much he hated the Diamonds being eaten by Lawrence Olivier. Is that is that brought up in that book at all? He does. He talks. Well, he he doesn't talk about hating it. He just he uh, he he. Actually, I don't know that he does talk about it, but he but the ending of the screenplay is just it's different than yeah. the ending of the movie. It's just a, it's just a different ending. I think the movie ending works better. Yeah, the, the novel um, ending is. Excellent. I don't know how his original screenplay. I assume it's the same as his screenplay, but I don't know. I kind of like the diamond yeah. eating, though. Well, he I thought the it diamond was eating is just—it's just thematically resonant. Yeah. I mean, I think it just works as just, as a theme. I just yeah. like Dustin Hoffman saying again and throwing them in his face. I like that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, all right, Greg. What do we got? What do we got next? All right, I'll save my big director one for the end, so that the my penultimate pick will be separate cinema. Uh, just so I figured I'd pick a poster book for summer reading, separate cinema. It's filled with, uh, you know, just, just dozens and dozens of one sheets, um, from classic Hollywood race cinema. And, uh, which I also bring up because of HBO's The Watchmen, um, which to anybody who watched that, I don't know if Bill did. I know Sonny did. I, I haven't watched the whole thing yet. Um, yeah, I've watched it. But you know, it starts with um, the one of the lead characters who becomes—I'm uh, forgetting his name—with the hood. 
Hooded Justice. Yeah, Hooded Justice. Um, you know, watching uh, a race film in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, as we remember coming up to Juneteenth uh, this Saturday. And the movies he's watching is, uh, is a black cowboy who's a hero. And that was actually based on Herbert Jeffrey, who played the bronze buckaroo, uh, which they detail in this book. Um, basically, it was it was independent black movies uh, that were done outside of Hollywood because the Hollywood movies, you know, pretty much just had um, mammy characters and step and fetch characters. And in movies made by black filmmakers, uh, they would be able to play anything they wanted to. Um, it's also kind of it's got a great introduction by Donald Vogel, who, if you've watched CCM, uh, he's a great historian of, of film overall and of uh, black film uh, in particular. Um, and it has a kind of boilerplate preface by Spike Lee. It's like six sentences long. And I, I get the feeling Spike Lee agreed to do it and then forgot about it. And then his assistant came to him and said, somebody's calling about a preface. And he said, <laughs> and he just like wrote six sentences and sent him on. It's kind of, it's really did did he write insulting. it in <laughs> did he write it in his standard title case sentences? <laughs> no, because that that drives me. I find his Instagram unreadable. Yeah, because it has it, to be so much more complicated and so much more time to write right. that way. Yeah, drives me crazy. Um, so I recommend that it's, it's got a lot of great history. Again, you get a lot of the posters. And then by each poster, you get a little description of the movie, uh, yeah. what was important about it. And so it just gives you a good uh, history of that. So it's separate Hollywood. And that separate was a cinema. Great. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say that was a su- smooth transition, too, because the movies that I talked about and that Sonny talked about all have posters. Yeah, they do. <laughs> exactly. um, wow. We're really crushing this. Yeah, we are. Thank you. Thank you, Bill, for pointing that out. <laughs> Uh, all right, Bill, what you got? All right, my next one is uh, Cronenberg on Cronenberg. Um, oh, boy. The uh, Faber and Faber, the publisher, uh, has done a million of these over the years. Um, they do a Gilliam on Gilliam, actually. Uh, and uh, uh, anyway, there's a, a bunch. Yeah, well. Scorsese on Scorsese. Yeah, yeah. We'll get to that one. Um, and when I bought it, I bought it. Uh, I don't think that this kind of detail is that necessary, but I bought it at a a bargain bin at Borders many, many years ago. And at the time, I – Cronenberg is one of my favorite filmmakers of all time, but at the time he wasn't. I I couldn't wrap my head around him. I liked The Dead Zone and I loved The Fly, but that's about as far as I could go. But The most mainstream choices. Yes, and I still – The most basic basic bitch choices. You didn't didn't like Scammers? I don't know if I'd seen it by this, at this okay. point. I hadn't seen everything. This is a long anyway. But uh, and I still think The Fly might be his single greatest movie. But at, in any case, um, but I he was so unlike anybody else. And I loved horror um, films, and and he was unlike any other horror filmmaker. And it was so I kept watching his movies, and I kept trying to figure him out. And so I saw this and I bought it and I started going through it and it made me want to watch the movies I'd missed and hunt them down. And one of the, I won't get too deep into it uh, cause I could go on forever about Cronenberg. Um, and it's, it's essentially a, a collection of interviews. Um, it's uh, uh, edited by Chris Rodley and uh, all of the, the Faber and Faber director on director movie uh, books rather are, um, essentially collections of interviews. And mm-hmm. I remember the main thing I remember was reading about Videodrome, which I had seen and I couldn't figure it out. And he says something in it. I still can't, but I love it. But well, but yeah, I know there's, it's not like I got it nailed down, but, but there, <laughs> there is one thing that he says about it because it's obviously about the effect uh, it has to do in part anyway with the effects of uh, violent and violently sexual imagery on an audience um, and what that can do. And um, and Cronenberg is no fan of the censors. And in Canada, he had he's fought with them, especially in his early days. He fought with them all the time. And he says he's he has a quote something along the lines of 
Um, sensors uh, do are the only uh, sensors do the same thing that uh, insane people do, which is they mistake <laughs> uh, fantasy for reality, or words to that effect. Or they confuse the two. Anyway, and he's but he video drum. His idea was, but what if they're right? What if yeah. the sensors are right? Yeah. And that was part of the impetus for Videodrome. And I ha- don't think I'd ever encountered an artist doing something like that before. Saying, I-, I don't agree with this at all, but I'm going to take that idea as though I did, as though I, uh, as though, though I believed it. And it's the, that kind of thinking. He also talks about uh, Dead Ringers. His, which is, um, if you don't know the movie, oh. um, it's uh, Jeremy Irons plays twins. And it's a very dark and weird movie. I won't get into the details, but it's a very dark, weird movie. And his his thought was, what if his approach was, let's say twins didn't actually exist. That that wasn't a thing in our reality. And this was now a science fiction concept that I'd come up with. And that's that was his mentality going into making dead ringers and i yeah, i just yeah. think that's amazing it's just amazing thinking and so imaginative and and it he reading him talk about his work made me appreciate it deeper and it made me become a huge fan of of him it, yeah, it's yeah. it's very good i just want to say quickly uh, uh, the the medical instrument props in dead ringers are some of my favorite props they're they're not ever created they're like beautiful. They're like beautiful mm-hmm. works of art. Yeah, they are. And the the, the red the red <laughs> surgeons surgeon cloaks yeah. are just like this cult, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right, I'm gonna go with uh, the conversations, Walter Murch and the art of editing film uh, with Michael Ondaatje. Uh, so uh, this is a this is Walter Murch's uh, kind of possibly the most famous editor of film. Now that uh, the uh, I, I would say that that that's a fair fair yeah. uh, ass- assessment. And he also is a is a sound editor and sound designer, and that's actually how he got to start working with uh, Coppola and Lucas and those guys um, back in the uh, 60s and 70s was as a as sound as sound design guy. Um, but it's really interesting. It's just a really interesting book about not only the art of editing and the art of sound design, um, but the art of adaptation, the art of... Uh, I don't the art of uh, turning uh, film into its own actual art form. I mean, there's a whole there's a little digression in this about how film has evolved, kind of uh, in 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 response to or in in uh, uh, accordance with principles that uh, music and photography and and other things have also the novel have also kind of evolved um, from. And it's it's just a, it's a really fascinating book by really with two really interesting guys talking to each other. Um, Andache, of course, is the uh, author of The English Patient, which Walter Murch uh, edited. Um, And uh, it is... it's just really, it's really fascinating. I I cannot recommend it strongly enough. Um, if you want to uh, get not only an insight into the world of editing, which people don't understand, people no. I, I think people really just don't understand what an editor does. Anytime you hear somebody say like, "Why didn't an editor cut out thirty minutes of that movie?" That's not what an editor does. <laughs> yeah, really. That's that's a screenplay problem. Or a, you know, yeah. that is a that's not that's not how an editor works or what they're supposed to be doing. Um, so this this book kind of helps explain that. He he wrote another book that is more specifically about editing theory called I think Blink of an Eye, um, which is uh, would I've got it behind me somewhere. I'll look for it while you guys talk. But the uh, but it, this is this is really fantastic, really wonderful. Um, you can pick it up. Anywhere it's again, it's the conversations. Walter Merch and the art of editing film uh, with Michael Andache. And, and if you can't get around to reading that right away, just check out Albert Brooks' Modern Romance for a really <laughs> yes. great, no, a really yes. great representation yes. of what an editor does. It really that movie really taught me, I think, better than anything else, what editors actually do. Yeah, it really is. It does a great representation. Of that. And anyway. uh, also, I wanted to say about Merch, the thing that's always so weird to me about him is he's directed surprise or directed he's edited surprisingly few films um and like one of them is i love trouble 
you know, he, yeah. he and first <laughs> Star night. Wars and I like it's it, it, he's got a strange career, but obviously, yes, he he's truly yeah. one of the great. Also, the director of Return to Oz. Yeah, which I've never seen. Oh, you I, should. It's fantastically I, I, weird. I hear it's great. Did you did you uh, see the art of cinematic sound making waves? I know. I don't think I did. It came out last year. It's terrific. It's not terrific. I gave it three stars on my letterbox, but uh, that's only because of that. Sounds very average. <laughs> that that doesn't sound. But terrific. it's only because how it ends. Uh, anyway, but that they they spent a large section talking about the sound design on Apocalypse Now uh, and how groundbreaking it was and. And uh, I would recommend the documentary just for that. Just yeah. to talk, show and what they yeah. did. Do they talk? There's a lot of that in this as well in the in the conversation. Do they talk about yeah. the Exorcist in that? Maybe. Actually, right, I well, don't recall. No. I've, I've ground this to a halt. We can move on. Thanks. Thanks. Okay. Uh, no. Yeah. Thanks, Bill. That's why, that's why nobody nobody likes you. Um, oh, <laughs> Jesus <man>. Christ! <laughs> <laughs> Throwing the gauntlet down. Well, um, all right. I'm just kidding. I like you. That's why I have you on my show. Come on, Greg. Yeah. What's what's your last pick? Uh, my last pick is is again a perfect transition because seriously, um, we're talking is about this- Dead Ringers and the Red Robes, and and I'm going to be talking about Red here. It's Scorsese on Scorsese, which is another of those the favor uh, the books. Um, and the section I was actually going to mention is is Raging Bull, um, where not only do you get a feel for, obviously, throughout it, how Scorsese worked on his movies, uh, or Scorsese, I should say. Sorry about that. Um, but when I'm reading it, you can hear his voice, you know? And he's talking about how he was showing the uh, rough footage of De Niro training to Michael Powell. And Michael Powell was telling him there's too much red. There's too much red on the, the, the gloves shouldn't be red. Um and he's like, and this this Michael Powell, he told me the same thing about Taxi Driver. He said, I had too much red in it. He's like, this this guy's got red all over his movies. What's he talking about? He says, the whole reason I use red in my movies is because of Michael Powell. Um, so when you're reading it, you can just hear Scorsese just talking in that manic way he talks. Uh, and about how that was, was the key to him deciding to do it in black and white. Because he didn't want the, uh, the reds to fade and and make the fight scenes less powerful over time. Uh, so they went with the decision to go with black and white. And also, if you've seen Raging Bull, and I'm assuming everybody who's listening to this mm-hmm. has, um, you know, there's those sections of the movie that are in color, that are the home movies, um, that were originally shot by Michael Chapman, uh, who was the, you know, the DP on the film. And uh, Scorsese said it wasn't working because it looked too much like a cinematographer was doing it. And I can't remember who they gave the camera to, but they just gave the camera to somebody in the crew and for the home <laughs> movie sections. And they said, film film them jumping into the pool and playing around. Um, oh, that's great. I didn't know that. No, I didn't either. I, I, it's funny. I, Bill and I had actually been trading DMs about this, but there's, a, there's, there's an interesting moment where he talks about uh, what could have happened with Mean Streets, which is... Um, uh, that essentially the there was there was a guy who came to him and was like, if you can make this a black exploitation movie, we'll fund it right now. <laughs> and it, and it, Scorsese thinks about it. He's like, well, could I do this now? It's not really. This is a movie about Italian, you know, Americans living their lived experience. It doesn't really make sense as a as a black exploitation flick. Um, so he he did not. But again, there's just like this weird alternate history where Martin Scorsese is like the 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 greatest black exploitation director of all time. Um, uh, Bill, what is your final pick? All right. <clears throat> um, I went, uh, I just went nuts on this one because I chose a novel. Uh, Flicker. How dare you? Flicker by Theodore <laughs> Rozak, who was, among other things, he was a, a an academic and a, a social critic, and he was very political in a lot of ways. But Flicker's not... I wouldn't say it's not political, but it's it's this epic. It's very long. It's like 600 pages, and it's like a horror novel about movies. And um, <clears throat> it came out in 1991, I want to say. Oh, I know. Yeah, I read that. Oh, you did? 
<laughs> it just it's all coming back to me. My yeah. brother read it, and then and then I read it. Yeah, it's a great book. And I thought that sounded familiar. It's it's very strange, and it essentially, um, you know, the main character, um, he uh, is in love with movies, and he uh, gets a job in a movie theater in New York. And he meets uh, – I think she's a projectionist um, who then becomes a film critic. And I, I got the sense I, – I, it's been a while since I read it and I haven't actually done the research. But I, I feel – I felt at the time that she was sort of based on Pauline Kael a little bit. Um, and – but the gist is is that as a – there's a lot of – there's a subgenre of horror that are is about um, – mysterious texts where be they films be they books be they paintings that people are searching for and that have this sinister power about them and in this case it's this uh, particular filmmaker named max castle who made horror movies um very low budget you know kind of like um Herschel Gordon uh, Lewis or something like that, but in a much, much more um, avant-garde kind of like hidden avant-garde kind of way. Like uh, anyway, and, but they would have these effects on audiences and then like whatever happened to Max Castle, what happened to these movies? And they, you know, read these articles and try to hunt them down. And the title flicker comes from, um, you know the between frames, the, the 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 black space between frames that you don't, your your eye can't pick up on, and the, the hidden effect that is that this director would put in that that would affect the viewer much more than the actual image that you're taking in consciously, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just a fascinating. Book. It's all. It's a, a similar in a in a way to Videodrome in the sense that it almost is like, what if sensors are correct? You know, what if these things do do have an effect on us uh, that we don't understand, and that it's a bad. It's it, it's it's nefarious. Not that I think Rosak believes that, but it's sort of the same idea. And uh, it's also kind of a black comedy, um, and it just covers so much. Orson Welles is in it for like a chapter. Maybe shows up. Um, and it's just is it old old Orson Welles uh, is it old wine pitch man Orson Welles it's like 70s Orson Welles 1970s Orson Welles okay. so yes <laughs> I guess is the answer to that um, and it's just wonderful and they've tried to make it into a movie several times my copy says soon to be a major motion picture from the director of Pie and Requiem for a Dream well that, that, that never happened but mm. they keep yeah. so uh, it, it would be hard to do I'd love someone to do it I don't think it will happen, but it's a great book, and I, I was so absorbed with it for the whole 600 pages. Yeah, great. Uh, so, Flicker by what? Was, Theodore Rozak. Last name is spelled R O S Z A K. Great. I'm going to put all these in the show notes, so uh, there will be a, a list there for you to check out. Uh, my final pick is American Movie Critics, uh, edited by Philip Lopat. Lopat. I can't remember how to pronounce his last name. Um, but it's uh, the Library of America's um, essentially omnibus collection of film critics. And I, I recommend it because, again, a lot of times people ask me, what should I read if I want to write about movies? And the thing I tell them is, don't, don't write about movies. It's a terrible idea. You're <laughs> wasting your life. Mm-hmm. Don't do it. Um, yeah, you're, really. you're, you will never, you'll never make it's it work. It's the dumbest thing you uh, can do. It's the dumbest. It's the, just watch movies and have a letterbox to count. You'll be much happier. Get a real job. Yeah. Go work at a bank. Um, you'll be, you'll be much happier. But if you, if you insist upon, uh, wanting to be a, a film critic, um, it's very, it's very important to read as many critics as you can to, uh, absorb the wide variety of styles there are to film criticism. You don't, there's no one way to write about movies. There's no one way to make a movie. There's no one, one way to watch a movie. Um, uh, American Movie Critics does a really good job of introducing a, uh, a wide variety of voices and styles and and genres of film. All sorts of different types of film are, are covered here. Um, so it is it and it, in in that sense, it is more useful to I think a person who is trying to figure out what they want than a specific collection. I mean, I have several Ebert books. I have several Kale books. Um, I have uh, the um, 
you know, a, a collections by John Simon and and Stanley Kaufman and you know, et cetera, et cetera. I could go on and on, but like the, uh, but this is really useful and helpful, I think, because it it gives you a broader sense of perspective about what the world of film writing can be at its best. Um, So check out American Movie Critics, uh, the Library of America's collection. Uh, Again, it's edited by Philip Lopate. Lopate, however you pronounce that. I think it's Lopate. Sorry, Phil. I don't mean to to get you get you all wrong there. Um, and that is it. That's all of our. We, nobody mentioned Hitchcock trophy. No, trofo. I did. How? Yeah, well, no. well, I thought that was gonna. I thought that was gonna come up. I, I remembered other things, and I wanted to not be so obvious. So 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 basic. Yeah, I know. understand. I understand. Which is why uh, this is Orson Welles. But also, you should read Hitchcock Truffaut because yes, it's it great. great. If you if you if you are interested, uh, even if you are not interested in the films of Alfred Hitchcock, but you should be interested in the films of Alfred Hitchcock because he's great. Uh, but that's just a fantastic look at two filmmakers talking about the 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 world of film. Um, all right, that is it for today's show. I just want to thank Bill, who I actually like a lot. Everyone likes Bill. That's uh, sweet. And and Greg for being on the show. Uh, like I said, I'll have links to all of the the books. In the, we have mentioned today uh, in in the show notes in the email that you get if you sign up for the Substack. So you know, uh, just go right there and buy them all. Just buy them, buy all. them all. Buy them all. We get, you got to support the economy. Got to bring it back. Um, and that will be it for today's episode of the Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. Uh, I'm Sonny Bunch, culture editor. I will be back next week with another episode. See you guys then. See you then.